Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, soften our hearts, open our minds, engage our spirits to help us hear your still speaking voice and help us to remember that while you are still speaking, we must still listen anew. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by telling you about a, uh, uh, one of those free newspapers that I saw in, uh, on a little newsstand. You know, you see them at coffee shops and restaurants, and actually a lot of those little newsstands have First News from uh, First Community Church on them. And, uh, uh, and this one was Columbus Alive. And it had a picture on the front of a gentleman and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to forgive ourselves for whatever conclusions we might jump to when you see that picture. He had a very long beard. He had on a black leather vest that you would sort of think of as a, for lack of a better word, a biker wearing. Um, it had an abbreviation on the breast pocket that I really can't say in a polite pulpit. Uh, he had on a black ball cap that said, white trash on it. And so, you sort of think, huh, what's that about? And you might even jump to some conclusions about him. It caught my eye. And then I noticed the headline on the newspaper said, inking over hate. Now, by the way, I should back up, and as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that my son has a beard and tattoos, <laughs> and is a musician. He has a lot of the qualities that this fellow had. And it turns out that this gentleman's name is Rich Regal. He owns a tattoo parlor or tattoo shop in Lancaster, Ohio. And he's a performer of rap music. And he has made it his mission, his ministry, to take tattoos of hate the most common one would be a swastika, and tattoo over them to make them into something else. To use biblical language, he literally transfigures them. He can, he's a talented artist, he can turn a swastika into a flower, or a face, or even a piece of pizza with cheese dripping off it. And he does this for free. He and a friend, also in the tattoo business, started the Project Hate cover-up after the white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville. They were aware that there are people who at one time in their lives got a tattoo that would telegraph hate and fear and rage, and yet they grew in their life, they came to think and believe and speak in a different way, and yet they still had this badge of hate literally on their body. It was a hate that they no longer felt. They had reconciled their insides, but their outsides still telegraphed a terrible message. And so, Rich Regal and his buddies, and now this campaign has spread all over the country, the Project Hate cover-up, 
for free, reconfigure these hate tattoos. He is changing lives. He says, if we can fix one tattoo, that's not just fixing that person's life. It's helping everyone who sees them at the beach or at the gym. Fixing that one tattoo is impacting the messages that hundreds and hundreds of people who see them walking down the street would receive. There's a woman in this article who had a swastika right on her chest and she had it transformed into a flower. She said this, my posture change afterward because I didn't have to worry about someone seeing such a heinous symbol on my body. The point of this story is much more than don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a guy by his beard and his ball cap. We're talking about how many layers there are of what it means to love the neighbor and the myriad ways there are to do it. You know, there may be things you don't particularly like about your neighbor, not superficial things, important differences. Shoot, there may be things you don't like about the people you sit down table with at Thanksgiving. There probably will be. But loving the neighbor is not about some gooey love, it's about respect and appreciation and honoring that neighbor for who they are. It's about honoring what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs calls the dignity of difference. Rabbi Sachs, who's had a lifetime of doing interfaith work and dialogue, says it isn't enough to just seek out those values that are common to people. It's not enough just to seek out common ground. We must also really reframe the way we look at difference. Difference is not a problem to be solved. Difference is not a disease to be cured. Difference is not a quality to be tolerated in another person. Difference is part of our humanity. And so when Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, he's saying embrace all of humanity. Love the people, all the people. And he isn't just saying, you know, this is a really good thing that you should do. He's saying these are the most important commandments and everything else flows out from them, everything. You cannot love God without loving those who God loves. You can't do one without the other. You cannot love God and oppress or exclude one of God's children. Now, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who were interrogating Jesus in this text, were all about following the law as they understood it. But they used the law to place some really severe limits on people that they felt obliged to recognize as their neighbor. Jesus turns the two together, love of God, love of neighbor, he flips the whole argument. He smashes the limits. He smashes the boundaries. He smashes the, the, the walls. And he says, here's what it means. You know, when I first looked at the scripture readings for today and saw this one, I, um, I thought about choosing something else. 
choosing something other than the single most significant passage in the entire Bible. This text was the foundation of my doctoral work. It all hinged on the understanding that there is a common word between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. That common word is love of God and love of neighbor. But you know, as I was thinking about this, I said, you know, they have probably heard enough from me about this. You could be forgiven, some of you, for even thinking, here she goes again. On the other hand, there really is no more important sermon to be preached from this pulpit or from any pulpit in America than love God, love your neighbor. And so, as I'm entering into these last couple of months of completing my ministry here at First Community, it seemed like a beautiful bookend to preach again on this text. When we are confronted with a stranger who seems very, very different from us, there is power in discovering what we have in common. That was the foundation of my research and many of you participated in it. At one point in my project, Muslims and Christians were asked to write down on little slips of paper what they considered their most important values to be. Didn't necessarily have to be religious values, just life values. And then the assignment was that they had to decide which ones were Christian and which ones were Muslim. And this became impossible. As a matter of fact, one person who participated got a little irritated and said, Deb, this was designed to fail, wasn't it? I said, no, it was just something I came up with at the last minute, to be honest with you. <laughs> the answers were compassion, love, honesty, forgiveness, acceptance, truthfulness, cooperation, philanthropy, peace, respect. Those were the words that both Muslims and Christians named as their most dearly held values. When we discover those values that we share, in spite of all the other stuff that looks different on the outside, we come to know each other better. We come to know each other as parents who care about the future of their kids, of people who care about the future of the economy and taking care of all people in our country. We get to know each other and the things that we share. So that's one piece of inhabiting a world of difference, is learning what we have in common. And another part, it's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, is understanding, acknowledging, and respecting that we are different. Now, I said before, it's a real understatement to say that this can be very challenging work. The point is not, no way, not to you know, cover up or smooth over, not pay attention to authentic difference, not pay attention to uh, um, things that are important. That's, that's not the point at all. And goodness knows, our country right now is being hammered by difference. There is so much anger. It's like anger is becoming our national temperament. It's like 
anger is becoming our default setting. Am I the only one who almost can't watch the news anymore? Because I'm just angry all the time. I got in my car to come from North Campus and turn the key and the radio starts blaring, these people yelling at each other. You don't need that on Sunday morning. We don't need that kind of interaction ever. Forget about loving the neighbor, sometimes we can barely say hello. And we have arrived at a very dangerous moment in this country because as writer Mark Chernoff says, when you hear only what you want to hear, you are not really listening. Listen to what you don't want to hear. That is how you grow. Listen to what you don't want to hear. Jesus, the rabbi, spent his entire public ministry trying to get people to listen to what they didn't want to hear. He was saying, don't just love your family, your tribe, your community, your people. Love your neighbor, whoever that person is. And that was a shocking command for his time. You know, there's also a very unfortunate uh, quality we have as human beings that we tend to dehumanize the person we disagree with. We tend to stop seeing them as human beings with feelings, struggles, joys, disappointments. We start seeing them as them, not truly human as we are. Unfortunately, says Mark Chernoff, the way we treat people we disagree with is a report card on how we have learned about love and compassion. If we learned anything from the man named Jesus, if we learned anything about love and compassion, then the way we treat the people we disagree with is a report card on our learning. And I hate to say it out loud, but right now in this country, we're getting a failing grade. Overall. When I was in seminary, I was introduced to a theologian named Kosuke Kuyama. He coined the word neighborology. He said it was the most important ology, more important than theology or Christology or eschatology or epistemology or ideology. All of those other ologies pale by comparison to neighborology. He says if our sense of God will be distorted if we fail to see God's reality in terms of our neighbor's reality, and our sense of our neighbor's reality will be disfigured unless we see it in the light of God's theology. Now let me tell you something about Kosuke Koyama. He was a Christian theologian, Japanese. He was baptized at the age of 15, and the minister who baptized him said that God had called him to love the world and everyone in it, even the Americans. 
Kosuke Koyama was baptized in 1945, a very short time after the United States had unleashed on Nagasaki and Hiroshima the most destructive weapons humanity had ever seen. And his pastor told him, you must love your neighbor, even the Americans. We don't often tend to put ourselves in those shoes, do we? I heard a quote about a week ago from a good friend that has been haunting me all week long. It comes from James Forbes. He is senior minister emeritus at the Riverside Church in New York City. He was the first African-American to lead this iconic Protestant church. Marvelous, marvelous preacher, marvelous theologian. Forbes says, if you are content with your worship service 80% of the time, then your church and your service are not welcoming enough to people who aren't like you. Wait, what? Of course we're welcoming. This is the first community. We're nice, friendly people. But you know, I, I kind of like things how I like them at church. I, I like coming at 11 o'clock. I like the music. I like the organ. I like the choir. I like this kind of preaching and this kind of praying. The implication from Dr. Forbes is don't get too comfortable. If we're too comfortable in our church, our community, our tribe, then our vision of the neighbor is limited. And if we're too comfortable, that means somebody else is uncomfortable. We get so accustomed to sameness that it becomes increasingly difficult to embrace difference. And that is particularly true in the church, particularly true in the worship life of the church. But if we're too comfortable, that means someone else is too uncomfortable to want to be here with us. So let's go back to Rich Regal, the tattoo artist with the white trash ball cap, who made it his mission to transform symbols of hate. Your takeaway from the story could be as simple as looks can be deceiving. That guy turns out to have more in common with you than you might have guessed. That's a, that's a perfectly fine, basic interpretation of that story. Or you could conclude that the mission of Jesus Christ to love the neighbor gets played out in all kinds of creative, imaginative ways that we can't even imagine in people and places that aren't obvious to us people we might never know, places we might never go. Or, after hearing that story, you might realize that there's always more to know about a person, even the person with the swastika on their arm. Remember, 
if we're too comfortable, we're leaving someone out. Someone who needs hope, someone who needs comfort, someone who needs the assurance of God's love and tender care as much as you and I do, maybe even more. We must never allow ourselves to become too comfortable. Amen.